Hello, I'm Eric Holderman, and this is Disaster Zone, a podcast about emergencies and disasters. Disaster Zone will bring you interviews and commentaries about all aspects of disasters, from what causes them to how people and organizations are dealing with their impact. This podcast is being sponsored by Dynamis, a leading provider of information management software and security solutions. You can find them at dynamis.com. Well, welcome to the Disaster Zone podcast. One of the unanticipated impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic is how it has accelerated the growing shortage of healthcare workers. This is happening at the same time people are retiring or just leaving the profession. Today's podcast is Aaron McLaughlin, an attorney with Buchanan, Ingersoll, and Rooney, and a member of the firm's labor and employment group. She handles complex employment matters and provides strategic day-to-day guidance to employers on their personnel matters. And we're going to be talking about healthcare workers. And welcome, Aaron. Thanks, Eric. I'm really happy to be here. Okay, and I'm guessing you're in New York City, but I don't know that for a fact. I'm actually in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Oh. <laughs> I guess I should have clarified that before that. Then we're done. <laughs> done. All right. Okay, well, listen, Aaron. Um, in general, what's going on within the healthcare profession when it comes to personnel at all levels and when it comes in particular to the retention of the workforce and then recruitment of people entering the profession. Sure, there's a tremendous shortage of workers in the healthcare industry right now. And, and I think somewhat un, unknown is the fact that, that that actually began before the COVID pandemic um, and has been then exacerbated by the COVID pandemic. Um, in that regard, it, it's pretty common for large healthcare systems to have hundreds of vacancies for nurses, for physicians um, across the board, and, and they don't have the personnel to fill them. All right. And, you know, the, why do you think that is? Is there the profession's not valued? I mean, we have shortages kind of across the board. I mean, there's teacher shortage. I know that that is, yeah. is there. So I'm, you could say it's almost everywhere, but is there anything that we'll talk a little bit more in depth about the pandemic per se, but anything that's causing the short, not enough educational institutions or the growth of the industry or? I actually think it's a population issue. So we have a shrinking labor pool and an increasing um, and aging population, which means that medical needs are increasing and we have fewer people to support and fulfill those medical needs. Okay, all right. And we could talk about immigration all day long maybe, but that's another, that's another topic there. Um, you mentioned the uh, pandemic specifically. I, one of the things, and I've, I've followed all this closely from a disaster standpoint is, you know, New York City early in the pandemic, you know, the healthcare workers were heroes and then they were just plain bedraggled um, across the nation, not just New York City, because of the workload in hospitals, intensive care units and, and that type of thing. And then 
as, as the whole issue became more politicized uh, aspect, you know, they're trying to take care of people who are angry at them and don't believe they have COVID. And I, I would just think that would make it, when you're being unappreciated by the people you're trying to serve, I think that'd be very difficult. I think it's spot on. Um, so early on when they were, they were heroes, they were at least getting the support of, of the US population, right? And, yeah. and as it became politicized, as you suggest, um, that support was, was very divided. Uh, and as a result, I think you've seen a tremendous amount of burnout with the healthcare professionals. I, I saw a statistics, statistic somewhere, I think nearly 20% of healthcare workers quit their jobs during um, the pandemic. And, and I think there's another 20% that have considered or are considering whether or not to get out of the healthcare profession entirely and do something else. Um, that is extremely concerning in an area where we already had a shortage. When you couple that with the fact that within the next 10 years or so, two of every five physicians in the workplace will be 65 years old or older. Um, that, that really makes the shortage um, it really enhances the shortage that we're looking at. Yeah, and you know, we've been talking about this all along, just a figure there, and, but we're finally getting to the point where the baby boomers are actually retiring. Now, I think we, it's interesting, not everybody is hanging it up at age 65 and there's, you know, people are feeling healthy enough and they like what they do and enjoy it from that perspective that we haven't, felt the full brunt of that retirement age, but you're, you're right. I, I, people always prognosticated it and you've got it close, but it, it's finally here, I think. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, one of the things, and I, I didn't have this on my list to talk to you about, but I, I, one of uh, the that solutions that have, has developed over time is this traveling nurse uh, resource. And I don't know if you know much about it. I, my wife just said, you know, I was in the hospital a year ago this week. So, yeah. And um, uh, traveling nurses, nurses are pretty standard that you see. And do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I traveling nurses, I've seen the benefit packages for a traveling nurse, and they can be exceptionally lucrative. The, the one backlash I've heard is from the nurses who are not traveling nurses and who are not receiving the same benefits despite doing the same work in the location where the work is being performed. Um, so I, I think there could be some resentment building there, but, but certainly it is, it's, a value, it's valuable to take nurses who are already trained and try to put them in the locations that we need them. Um, yeah. and, and to the extent we can kind of satisfy an immediate need using a traveling nurse, the program seemed very helpful. Yeah, and uh, you know, I would, I, I experienced a, a couple, husband, wife, who were traveling nurses uh, together and they were moving around the country. And then uh, there was at least a young woman and a young man and they were traveling nurses that they liked the idea of going different places and doing that type of thing. And then I read a story about a traveling nurse who, in order to make more money, just what you said, became a traveling nurse, but she doesn't travel. <laughs> she's in a major metropolitan area and just moves around and she's getting a lot more pay for it, so. 
And I, I think it, especially in an environment where we want to retain the folks that we have, um, we need to make sure that, that the resentment towards the nurses doesn't build. Yeah. Well, you know, even before the pandemic, uh, if you think major metropolitan areas have, a, have an issue, rural communities were experiencing healthcare worker and care center, you know, clinics, hospital shortages. Uh, not unusual to see a, a rural hospital with 10 beds or something like that and no real intensive care. Um, is that from a single issue or is a combination of factors driving the decline of healthcare in general, especially in a rural communities? We talked about just the um, aging workforce, but are there other factors involved with that? I do. In addition to um, the, the aging workforce, uh, in rural areas, you tend to have older people. Um, they are um, less well-insured. Um, they frequently have um, chronic diseases. Uh, and the prevalence is in, increased in rural areas, probably from lack of appropriate care early on in their lives. Um, they have other uh, they have, it's more frequent that you'll see obesity, um, occupational injuries, all of those are more common in some of our rural areas. Um, and they tend to be poorer than our urban communities. Um, they garner lower wages, they tend to be more likely to be unemployed. All of those factors um, really contribute to the needs of those communities. And, and then when you look at it in terms of a, a hospital setting, um, the hospital is often there in addition to caring for patients to, to run a business. And, and it's very difficult to run a business when there aren't that many people in the area, but they still have those same medical needs. Yeah, uh, it's been uh, many, many years ago, but I was on like oh, a 200 mile flight here in, uh, in Washington State where I live, Eastern Washington is the rural area primarily. And there's a gentleman on the flight, he's flying to Seattle to get uh, a chemo treatment. And that was how he was getting his um, you know, medical services. So uh, what about uh, on, on this, you know, telemedicine has been a, a significant benefit during the pandemic, it was developing. I just wonder if for these rural communities, when you talk about the population being served, uh, they're not on TikTok all day long. I think, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that at all? Yeah. The, the, the fact their ability to use the technology. Your point is spot on. So telemedicine is great, especially for those of us who are hooked up to computers all day long. Um, it, it is a, a very helpful, very effective way of getting a, an initial consultation with a physician. But most of the individuals in those rural communities don't have the access that we have, both to internet itself and, and the computer yeah. devices to be able to do that. Um, so while telemedicine, I think, is serving a purpose and probably will continue to serve a purpose moving forward, um, I do think it still poses obstacles for rural communities. Okay. Um, how about medical specialization? What, you know, if you're a specialist, you're going to make more money. I don't know if that's driving it, uh, a shortage there, but uh, I just know personally, uh, to include my... <laughs> My spouse, uh, she wanted to get a, a, 
uh, a new different you know family care provider or family doctor and then she can't find a place that um, you know is taking new patients I guess it's the term we're not taking any patients uh, at, at present because of a lack of physicians working as general practitioners is that how's, how's that impacting yeah so I, I took a look at this in preparation for for our podcast and, and definitely um, the reports are showing that the top 20 specialties uh, that are in high demand number one is family medicine so general practitioners and I do think it's because of the wages that specialties are in such demand too that mm-hmm. if you can go if you can specialize and make several times what you would make as a general physician, um, the, the medical students are more likely to do that. Okay. Although I don't know why anybody would want to be a proctologist, in my opinion. It's... <laughs> There's a few of them. Podiatrists. <laughs> yeah, well, they're out there. Trust imagine me. Either. <laughs> I keep waiting for the call for my, my, you know, colonoscopy, really. Thank you very much. Anyway. Um, the other thing, though, a, a growth area, and... Um, I actually have my family doc. He's 76. I'm thinking, how many more years are you going to work here? He likes working. It's reduced schedule and all that. But I, I'm seeing a lot more physician assistants and nurse practitioners kind of backfilling this general practitioner piece. Is that, um, you know, again, another trend out there that that's who's stepping up to the plate? It is a trend. Um, what's, what's interesting, and um, I was unaware of this, but the medical schools are, have actually seen uh, an increase um, in enrollment over the past two years. So the medical schools itself are actually pumping out as many doctors, if not more, as they were previously. Um, mm. So I don't know in that regard that, that we need to rely as much on nurse practitioners. And in fact, there is um, a shortage of nurse practitioners based upon demand. Um, So while I I think there have been some aspects of treatment that are now being delegated to non-physicians, I don't think it's a permanent solution for us to to believe that we're going to be able to delegate more and more of, of that aspect of treatment to general practitioners, medical doctors, I think you're still gonna need your specialties. Uh, Cardiology, for example, um, if you have a heart issue, you're gonna wanna have somebody who is specialized in in doing that type of work. So I I, I think we can use those those providers for many things, but there are still gonna be areas that we absolutely need our specialists. Okay. You know, interesting, just anecdotally, I have a, a former neighbor I get together for coffee once a week, and he told me, you know, for his medicines, he's been dealing with a pharmacist, a pharmacist. He figures the pharmacist knows more about all these drugs than the actual doctor does. So, I mean, it's kind of a substitute uh, way to get, and I haven't heard anybody going to the uh, veterinarian yet, but it's possible. <laughs> Yeah, no, Eric, it's so funny you say that because I will tell you, I can't tell you how many times I've asked my uh, pharmacist for information that you would typically ask your healthcare provider. Yeah. Um, And they're usually great. They have great information. And, you know, where I live, there's a uh, retired veterinary uh, doctor. And he did large animals, small animals for a small community of like 4,000 people in 
Montana or something like that. And I said, I bet you sewed up some people sometimes too, though. He said, yes, I did. You know, there's no 24-hour walk-in clinic. Uh, in that That's right. <laughs> well, listen, Aaron, we're about halfway through. We're going to take a quick break for a message from our sponsor, and then we're going to be uh, right back. This podcast is being sponsored by Cobra, an emergency management software solution. Cobra provides a cloud-based EOC software that is intuitive, collaborative, and affordable. Visit cobrasoftware.com. And we are back and we're talking to Aaron McLaughlin, attorney who specializes in labor about the shortage of healthcare workers. And we described the um, shortage. I, I think sometimes we, uh, in emergency management, we call it admiring the problem. <laughs> we, we spend a lot of time admiring the problem, but not finding ways to fix things. So the, the National Governors Association, though, has recognized that there's this growing shortage of medical professionals. What's the initiatives that they've launched? Sure, they, they have identified key workforce priority areas. Um, a few of those are healthcare workforce planning and design, identifying strategies to better collect and analyze data to inform and evaluate policy, um, aligning education and training outcomes with population needs, building workforce capacity in rural and underserved areas through training, um, recruit, recruitment, retention, um, forms of technology, telehealth, for example, as we were discussing, uh, identifying mechanisms and implementing state policies to allow providers to practice um, at the top of their license, so really maximizing the benefits. Um, they're, they're looking at aligning statewide delivery um, and, and payment reform efforts. They're looking at integrating mental and behavioral health with primary and acute care. I, so I, I think there are a number of initiatives. Um, it's it's gonna be the execution of those initiatives that really will, will determine the types of results that they yield. Okay, and what, you know, this isn't a single state, it's multiple states. I don't know what the right term would be banding together, but trying to address this more collectively. What's the benefit of, of that over a single state doing it on their own? Yeah, I think the idea is that the, the problems that exist in one state also exist in another. And if, if one state is able to solve those problems or come up with an effective solution, that, that another state can then take the benefit of it. Okay. Do you think it's always trans, directly transferable or sometimes, the, uh, for lack of a better, the geopolitical setting is so different that it doesn't necessarily translate. I, I, I work a lot with Canada and there's no way you can compare the health systems. I mean, they're so different in that perspective, but you can see that type of thing sometimes, or maybe it's a political philosophy or approach to the whole thing. I don't know, any, any thoughts on that? Um, the transferability I, and challenge of, it's an apple, but it's a different apple, you know? Yeah, I, I think, the, the differences between the states, um, you, you see those based on the different issues that they face. So even though two states are right next to each other, they may face very different issues, even though their populations are the same. And I do think that there are different um, factors that contribute to that. Political um, factors are, are one such factor that I, I would um, certainly assume has an impact. 
Um, so it will be interesting to see. The, the idea is that these states come together and then we can all share ideas, even share resources in some respects. So it will be interesting to see whether or not that actually comes to fruition and we're able to do that effectively. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, today, actually, I'm, I'm tired about hearing about but the whole abortion issue, that's creating all these divisive aspect. We don't need to discuss it here, but it's just interesting. There's going to be absolutely no collaboration between states on that. And that it illustrates the difficulties when people aren't all pulling on the rope in the same direction. I, I don't it, it's know. fascinating. It, to, to your point, that is going to be an issue that it appears is going to be left to the states. And, and each state seems to have very different approaches to how they're going to handle it. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I'll ever cover that as a topic. <laughs> Although it, it could turn into a disaster. But um, I was just going to say, it's disaster zone. That might be perfect. <laughs> yeah. So, that, yeah, I've never even heard of this organization, Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, Bureau of Health Workforce, has targeting growing the diversity of nation's healthcare workforce. What, what's that look in practical terms, and how can that? effort be sustained over time. Every, what I see in government, pretty broadly, everybody's trying to um, have more diversity in their workforce, but. It's particularly difficult in times of a labor shortage. If we had a, you know, a labor surplus, it would be far easier to um, you know, really focus on the, the, the diversity and the equity um, and inclusion aspect of hiring, it, it, it becomes a challenge. So, so what HRSA is trying to do is they, they, they are trying to advocate for diversity, diversifying um, healthcare workers by, by providing training opportunities um, for physicians, for other healthcare providers that have been historically systematically included excluded, I'm sorry, um, and really trying to promote programs, training, funding for educational opportunities, those types of things. Um, and, and again, it's, it's a fantastic initiative, and I think it's something that we need to focus on um, and, and ultimately succeed in. But it's just very challenging when you're dealing with a, a current shortage that we need to address. And, you know, the um, let's just have a, a a lunch in my, it was my coming out party, <laughs> actually being in a room with, you know, five, 600 other yeah. people, uh, unusual. Um, and a very Seattle event, we, the, the menu choices were salmon or tofu. <laughs> I've never seen tofu offered. Hopefully you won't see it in Pittsburgh. But yeah, um, I was gonna say, we don't see that in Pittsburgh. Our vegetarian yeah. meal is chicken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> very good. Well, I grew up in the Midwest and I tell, I tell people if it didn't move cluck or oink, we didn't eat it. So That's right. <laughs> um, where am I going with that? But it's, it's just interesting. The, they had some panelists up there, but they all talked about how they were first or second generation uh, immigrants. And there's a huge talent pool. These, these people were extremely sharp, very well educated and being successful in their you know, professions or starting a business entrepreneur all that. It, it's a huge talent pool out there that I think we need to learn to tap. But, you know, sure, you, sure. 
That's spot on. So there, there is a um, Healthcare Workforce Resilience Act um, that is, it has been introduced and it's a bipartisan um, bill that really focuses on um, maximizing the um, immigrant visas and, and the immigration process so that we can really tap that talent pool that is not being tapped enough. Yeah, and, and the, you know, you could target them to the rural areas uh, from that. Correct. Yeah. Which we'll talk about a little bit more on that on that topic. But you'd mentioned before we started that there's more of a national issue on healthcare equity and diversity of communities being served and making that a career path for minorities. And I think there was an announcement recently by Vice President Harris or Sure. So um, Vice President Harris, um, it, I want to say it was in November, announced a, a $1.5 billion investment in the National Health Service Corp and Nurse Corp, um, that they will expand and diversify uh, the health work, that will expand and diversify the health workforce and improve clinical critical clinical care in underserved communities. And the idea there is that they are really opening up funding for positions, so residency positions, so that um, new doctors can go practice in underserved communities. Um, and, and the thought there is that this will increase the, um, the diversity that we have in our healthcare ranks, especially given that you know, tuition in um, uh, educational expenses are such a deterrent oftentimes to the underserved population. Yeah. Well, I, and it, it appears that if you can get these medical personnel, uh, and maybe it's, uh, some, uh, it's not indentured service, but it's a payback, they're going out to a rural area, that they will then actually have more of a tendency to stay and continue to serve because they found it, it's a great place to live quality of life, right? Yeah, my experience frequently has been with physicians who choose to stay in what are underserved communities, frequently come from underserved communities themselves, so the rural communities, and they have a great amount of pride going back to those communities where they grew up and practicing medicine there. And those are your dedicated, loyal who are there because they want to be there, not because somebody forced them to be there. And if you can provide them the ability to do that without really having to worry about the, the hundreds and thousands of dollars of debt hanging over their head, I, I do think you're going to get some really loyal, experienced professionals in those rural communities who would otherwise be forced to go to one of the metropolitan areas to make more money. Okay. And, at, you know, this is another, um, I'm out of my league a little bit here, um, Aaron, so I'm, I'm leaning on you about the, the, the next gen knowledge exchange network. So what is that and how will access to a learning collaborative uh, of resources help in addressing you know, the current and worsening medical uh, healthcare crisis? Sure, so the next generation of the healthcare the Healthcare Workforce Learning Collaborative was um, a, a, an initiative launched by the National Governors Association Center for Best Practices. And, and the goal there was to support state officials in implementing strategies 
to combat a healthcare worker shortage caused by various factors. Um, some of the factors are the ones that we've already discussed. Um, the idea is that they will um, collaborate, they will um, discuss the issues that they're having among, among themselves. They will um, you know, share knowledge, share information, share solutions, share what is not working. And, and then the, the next generation, so the, there is a knowledge sharing collaborative in which additional group of states will then have access to that information. Okay, uh, you, you, you know, you mentioned a good thing. A lot of times we're all about sharing best practices. And I think it's great to share it. We tried this and it didn't work. <laughs> and that right. doesn't that, don't that, waste your time. <laughs> Although, I, you know, sometimes there's different, there could be a, a, a leadership issue that kind of kills the program or something, but identifying why it didn't work uh, is helpful. But rather than everybody having to stub their toe, uh, you know, learn from one another, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, you know, what final thoughts do you have here, Aaron? for people listening to this podcast uh, about what they should know. And is there, typically it's called a general call to action for the average citizen or patient seeking medical care. I mean, if they're a citizen or just a resident, what, what's the right attitude to have about all this? What, what should they be uh, telling their elected officials about this? Definitely. So, so certainly in areas where there is a shortage, and it seems like that, that those areas are growing, um, you do need to talk to your elected officials and determine whether there are ways that you can bring more providers, whether it's a traveling nurse, whether it's, it's some sort of partnership between large health systems to provide clinics in, in the local area. Um, all of those are, are a, a good way of certainly making the issue known and, and providing then some, some proposed solutions as part of, of the, the report. But in addition to that is be good to your medical professionals. You know, don't uh, abuse the need to go there. If you, if you can use telemedicine and it, it will effectively resolve the issue that you're having, use it, you know, be respectful of their time and, and the fact that they are a limited resource and, and they've worked really hard in the past two years. And it's, I think, really important that we all remember that. Yeah, really appreciate them, right? Yeah. At all levels. And um, at all levels. That's a yeah. great point, Eric, from, you know, the person that greets you when you walk into that office to, to the most specialized position that you see. Yeah. And, uh, you know, my grandfather was a janitor. I always say hello to the janitor type of thing. They, they are doing a critical element in a medical setting. I'll tell you that. You right. want... Eric, my grandmother was a janitor, so I, I okay. do your thing. All right. Well, I, I just want to say thank you to Aaron McLaughlin for being a guest here on the Disaster Zone podcast. It is my pleasure to be here, and I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very much, Eric. And some... Time, maybe I'll have you back. We can talk about unions if, if that's Oh, I'd love to be back. <laughs> we, it's, it's, it's something I've dealt with, and it's just interesting to see what's happening out there today. You know, so uh, maybe we can make that happen. Well, I, I hope everyone listening today is coming away more informed about our healthcare provider crisis and what is being done to address it. 
And a reminder to everyone to be proactive. Think about what you can do today to become better prepared for the next disaster. Maybe you can encourage someone you know to consider a professional career in the field of medicine. If you like this Disaster Zone podcast, please share it with your email and social media contacts. Thanks for listening and be safe. Tune in again soon for more information on all aspects of disasters. You can also check out the Disaster Zone blog at www.disaster-zone.com.